All right, Alexander, let's talk about Putin's address to the Federal Assembly, kind of like the State of the Union for, for Russia, I guess you could, you could say. Uh, I thought it was a typical Putin speech. I really, I mean, I, personally, I wasn't expecting these, these huge announcements that much of the collective West media was, was going on about. And, and you heard from Ukraine officials as well that he's going to change the status of the special military operation or he's going to declare war or he's going to, to talk about full mobilization. I, I thought it was just a, a good, solid Putin speech. That's how I saw it. And there were some interesting nuggets of of information, interesting announcements that he did make, like pulling out of, not pulling out, suspending, suspending the start. That was interesting. But uh, for the most part, I think it focused on the SMO, but it also focused on domestic issues. And um, it wasn't panicked. It wasn't hysteria like you see from Biden or Ursula or any of these uh, leaders. It was just Putin um, in control, calm. He, he had all the numbers down, all the information down, very detailed. And I think he gave a, a good, compelling uh, uh, federal assembly speech. I was going to say a good, compelling State of the Union, a good, compelling federal assembly speech. I, I think that is exactly right. Now, I'm going to say straight away, there was, as you rightly say, lots of rumors, a lot of them from Ukraine, by the way, but they've been, they were picked up by all sorts of people in the media, not just, by the way, the Western media, even some, uh, you know, Russian uh, commentators were getting very excited. They were, you know, saying he's going to announce another mobilisation. He's going to declare war. He's going to upgrade the special military operation to something bigger. Uh, that's, to all intents and purposes, already happened. So I don't know why people are fixated on that. But anyway, they were all uh, very excited and expecting something like that. My experience of Putin is that he doesn't do this. At least he hasn't done this over the last year. If he's got something specific like that to say, like an announcement on mobilisation, he will deliver a specific address to the Russian people on television, which touches on precisely and on that issue. In a state of the nation address, which is what this is, he's going to obviously paint a much broader picture. And that's what he did. Now, I will say there were some things that were different about this particular speech. The, the one which is completely un, unexplained to me is the location, why it was done in a place called the Gastini Dvor, which is a big Tsarist era building, previously some kind of a, you know, merchant building and not in the Kremlin. I, I don't quite understand that, but no doubt we'll have an explanation. And I don't think it's important. But the other things that were important and interesting about this, first of all, this was very, very structured. All of Putin's speeches are very structured. But it was also unusually historicist. <laughs> um, he went through a lot of discussion about history, about the history of the relations between the West and Russia, how the West has been hostile to Russia in the past, how Russia's had to deal with that in the past. He discussed the politics, the international politics of the 1930s. He talk, talked about the 
policies in Ukraine of the former Habsburg Empire, for example. He did what he likes to do, and by the way, which Russians like to do. This is a very historically minded country. He brought the whole arc of history, if you like, up to date. He said, we've been here before. This is nothing new that's going on with Ukraine. We've seen this happen in the past, and we have to cope with it today, just as we coped with it in the past. And, you know, that was an interesting aspect of this speech, and not one that you tend to find very much about, much, you know, in, in, in other speeches of this kind. So there was this historical element. There was also, of course, again, parts of the speech which distinguish Russia from the West. He talks about, he talked a lot about social policies and all kinds of policies there. We have to be very careful what we say here. But again, his point was, to us, this is unpleasant, it's ugly. We don't want to have anything to do with it in Russia. If people in the West want to do it, that's their business. But don't try and bring it to us. And he spoke a lot about the economy. And he said, we're not going to sacrifice our entire economy to some kind of arms race with the Americans in the way that the Soviets did. We're going to develop our armed forces. We're going to provide them with modern weapons. We've learned lots of lessons from how to fight these kind of wars in Ukraine. We're going to absorb the, those uh, lessons. But at the same time, we are going to build our economy. And the economic news he gave was good. <laughs> the economy only contracted by 2% last year, 2.1%, as opposed to the... 20% that I remember lots of people were predicting. That, by the way, is a smaller GDP contraction than the one Russia experienced both during the pandemic and at the time of the 2015 crisis, uh, which was the one that followed directly after the West first imposed sectoral sanctions on Russia. So Russia has absorbed the blow better this time. And he also said that unemployment is at rec uh, rather employment is at record levels in Russia, and um, at the same time, inflation in the second quarter will be back almost at his four percent target. So he was optimistic about the economy. He was optimistic about the economy. He said we're going to press on with our long-term plans, and we're not going to let ourselves be drawn into an arms race which bankrupts us. But, and this is the bombshell at the end, we can't trust the West anymore. They lied to us over Ukraine. They deceived us over the Minsk agreement. They deceived us over NATO expansion. They've uh, shown that they can't be trusted in any particular. They are, they've completely undermined arms control. They're no longer working with us on the last remaining nuclear arms treaty, which is the START treaty. They're obstructing us from carrying out the inspections of US nuclear weapons facilities, which we're entitled to carry out um, because you know, that's all in the treaty. So in, the, in view of that, it makes no sense for us to continue. We are now suspending our operation 
of the START Treaty. We're not pulling out of it. He was very careful to say that. We are suspending it. We're going to merge whatever transgression the, Ukraine, the Americans make one for one. And if the Americans start resuming nuclear testing, we are ready to do the same. Now, nuclear arms control hangs by a thread. It's almost collapsed. When I was living during the Cold War, that was the biggest topic of discussion, arms control in East-West relations. People were afraid of nuclear war. We've now seen that whole structure of arms control laboriously negotiated by the Soviets and the Americans during the Cold War, and then subsequently by the Americans and the Russians after the Cold War. It has totally collapsed. There's, we're on the brink, or so it seems to me, of an unconstrained nuclear arms race, except that during the Cold War, the United States had one adversary, which was the Soviet Union. Now it has two big ones, China and Russia. China is also now rapidly building up its nuclear forces. And of course, it's got to worry about North Korea as well, which we talked about in a recent program. And I've just seen that in Iran, uh, the inspectors have found there that the Iranians have some uh, nuclear material which has been enriched to almost 90% levels. So conceivably, one day, the United States could be faced with a nuclear-armed Iran. So the whole system of arms control is on the brink of collapse. The whole system of international relations is on the brink of collapse. The Russians are building up their ground forces. The Chinese are doing all sorts of things that they want to do. This is the world the neocons have given us a world in which there's no arms control, nuclear weapons are being built at an ever-accelerating race, and the United States, instead of having to compete against one side, the Soviets, now has to compete against many. Yeah, but I have the feeling that the neocons, they, they wanted Russia oh, to, yeah. to put a pause and, and start. I mean, this, was, this is what they were aiming for, because... Their their idea is is that they're they're kind of going back to how it was in, in the Cold War, and their thinking is that you know one of the ways that we brought the Soviet Union down was by putting pressure on the Soviet Union to match us, you know, tit for tat with with whatever um, yes. nuclear weapons we were producing. So that's one of the ways that we put pressure on the Soviet Union. So we're just we're just going to do the same thing again. It's like they're. It's like Ukraine is to them is Russia getting bogged down in Afghanistan and, you know, yes. dismantling start is is putting the pressure of of nuclear weapons like did to the Soviet like they did to the Soviet Union back back then. It's they're just they're repeating everything that in their minds led yes. to their victory in the Cold War. But like you say, they, they're not taking into consideration that a lot has changed. Yeah, they, they don't so see well, that. No, they, they, I mean, they, they are, for one thing, it's now clear to me, they're so obsessed with Russia that they're not able to see the rest of the world. They haven't even seen the extent to which Russia itself has changed, but we'll come to that in a moment. But you're absolutely right. I should say that these people, or rather their predecessors, um, as I remember during the Cold War, 
also opposed every single arms limitation treaty with the Soviets. I mean, the, you know, they want to take us back, in effect, to the world that existed before the Cuban Missile Crisis. You know, in the 1950s, when the Soviets and the Americans, there were no restrictions on what they could do, and they were developing nuclear weapons at an absolutely frantic level. And as I said, in 1962, we came very close to an outright nuclear confrontation between the two. So that's the world they yearn for. That's the world they re are returning us to. They also, as you rightly believe, that, that the US eventually um, bankrupted the Soviets with military spending. But of course, they are oblivious to the fact that the world, as you correctly say, has changed. We're not dealing any longer with just one adversary nuclear superpower, which is the Soviet Union. Today, there are many of them. There's China, which has a manufacturing capacity which is bigger than that of the United States and Europe combined. We have a Russia whose manufacturing capacity should not be underestimated, as we've seen over the course of the Ukraine war. They're able to produce more weapons than the United States is to the US's own astonishment. And, and, of course, we now have other countries, like you say, North Korea, Iran, and who knows who's next? Ira India, of course, has also got nuclear weapons and nuclear missiles. And everybody will be competing. And the United States cannot compete against all of these countries at once. And given that these countries are increasingly working with each other, the Russians, the Chinese, definitely, the Russians the Chinese and the Iranians increasingly, probably at some point the North Koreans too. The Indians and the Russians are excellent terms. Ru China is buying more oil from Russia than it has ever done. India almost exactly matches the amount of oil from Russia uh, that China buys. You know, the United States cannot compete with all of these countries simultaneously, and especially not if they're all working with each other. So the neocon plan is more likely to bankrupt the US than it is likely to bankrupt the Russians. It's not going to be a repeat of the 1970s and the right 1980s. And that, of course, all depends on you know whether we can avoid another crisis like the 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis, and if we do find ourselves in such a crisis, whether we can get out of it in the way that we did then, avoiding getting all, all, ourselves all blown up. I mean, you know, people, again, forget how dangerous the Cuban Missile Crisis actually was. So, I mean, it's foolishness from the neocons, but you're absolutely right. It is exactly what they want, because... They cannot see the changes that are happening in this world. Yeah, but it's good for business for the military-industrial complex. It gives, once again, it gives NATO a purpose. So all of these things are, are beneficial for the, for the neocons and, and the, uh, the businesses and, and the institutions that, that, that are around them, that surround the, the neocons. So yes, which this, is, this is something I mean, that... Yeah, which, bear in yeah. mind. Bear in mind the neocons. The reason they are so powerful 
is that they get their their websites, their think tanks, their uh, uh, NGOs, all get funded by the military-industrial complex. That's where they get their dollars. That's why they're so influential in Washington today. So absolutely, you're quite right. It's a sort of vicious loop, which, as I said, we can't break free from. Yeah, it's going to bankrupt the United States, though, because one of the interesting points that Putin made in his speech was that Russia is not the country that's that's in debt. Russia is not the country that's spending $800 billion on its military budget. Uh, Russia can can focus, domestically can focus on building schools and bridges, infrastructure, health care, all of these things which Putin addressed in his speech. And he actually addressed it with great detail. This is something that that the U.S. is, it, it's coming undone in the U.S. because the, the, the military spending is, is just out of control. And Putin yes. even mentioned that the, the, the dollar hegemony, the, the, the petrodollar, the dollar as, as the world's currency, is also being uh, undermined by their own, by their own doing. Yes. I mean, Putin was very clear. He says, we're, we, we're not the ones that are, that are trying to undermine the dollar. It's your actions that are forcing the world to move away from the dollar. So he was, exactly very, right. he was very clear on these, uh, on these details. Absolutely. Yeah. That's exactly right. That is exactly what he said, and exactly what he said about the state of Russia's economy. You know, you know, they, they can they can absorb uh, higher military spending. And for, for one thing, they have their military spending out of under control. They don't have the kind of military industrial complex you have in the United States, which doesn't make artillery shells because there's no money in. <laughs> I mean, you know, that that's that's the fundamental difference. So the Russians can can produce these things. Um, much more cheaply than the U.S. can. And at the same time, however badly it was done originally, however complicated the process and protracted the process was, the Russians have now sorted out the underlying structural weaknesses of their economy. It's no longer the centrally planned, state-run Soviet economy where every price is decided by a committee. That's not, the kind of, that's not the kind of adversary the US is taking on today. My own sense was that Putin was basically saying, look, it's actually an opportunity for us. We can actually develop our own industries. We can build up our uh, you know, factories, our plants. Um, he talked to, you know, Russian businessmen, he said, you know, all your expectations, your beliefs that the West was a safe haven have turned out to be untrue. Invest in our own country, build up our own country. We can build up our industries. We can sort out our science. We can improve our infrastructure. We can do all of these things because as a result of this break from the West, we no longer are trapped into the situation where the West only wants us as a commodity producer. We've now got the freedom and the space internally to develop by ourselves. So it's quite a, you know, that I, I almost got the sense that Putin says, you know, this is a challenge. We have a lot to do, but it's something we can do, something that's to our long-term benefit. And I think he's almost looking forward to it. 
Yeah, I, I agree. I actually think the the speech was very optimistic. I mean, that's my own take. I mean, I'm not saying it was it painted a rosy picture of things, no. but it's it, it. Putin was definitely not in panic. He, he he didn't look sick first. Let's start there. He didn't look sick. He didn't look ill. He looked very very much in charge. He wasn't panicked about anything. He seemed fully in control, and he delivered a speech that. To me, was pretty pretty upbeat given all yes. of the circumstances, and Absolutely. I think one of the reasons that that he feels more confident is that he's finally let's see uh, he's he's finally come to terms with the fact that Merkel and Hollande and all these people they uh, they lied to him. It, it exactly. seems like he's accepted that and he's understood that the decision he made to start the special military operation, there was always that doubt. You know, did I do the right... This is my opinion. Did I do the right thing? Maybe, you know, maybe they would eventually enforce Minsk or maybe something was was off with Minsk. I don't know. You know, There, there always seemed to be that little bit of doubt. But given yes. all of the statements from Merkel and Hollande and Poroshenko and Zelensky and, and everybody now that has come out in the last two, three months and said, you know, we've... We were plotting to blow up Nord Stream. We were planning sanctions three months before the special military operation. You know, Minsk was a, was a farce. All we all we yeah. wanted to do was build up the the Ukraine army so we could we could eventually fight Russia. All of these statements, which have really just come out in the past three months, you know, just an avalanche of of statements uh, admitting to to all of this uh, to this let's just say this provocation towards Russia. It seems like Putin has has. It, it's like a huge weight has been lifted off of his yes. his shoulders, yes. and he's like, "Okay, you know, my instincts were correct." I mean, that's that's the feeling Absol- that I got from absolutely. From his I think that's, enti- I, that's entirely right. I think he, first of all, I think it's important to say that I think he sincerely, he's absolutely sincere in thinking all these things. I know that people in the West always push back on that, but I, I, I've no doubt at all that when Putin talks about all of the things that I've said, you said just now, he absolutely sincerely believes them and as a result he's at peace with himself that may again surprise people in the west when we say that but he he feels look i did all i could i worked really hard i trusted these people i worked with these people i tried to build a relationship with them i really strove to make minsk work i held back on ukraine nobody therefore can blame me and I was right all, all along. You know, they were deceiving us. They weren't uh, uh, sincere about wanting peace. And I think he not only thinks that, but I think he now feels that Russians think that too. And as I said, as a result, that's, as you correctly said, it's lifted the burden off him. He feels both personally and politically that his case has been made. So I, I, you know, I think that's something which people in the West perhaps don't understand. But I think that was the impression. By the way, just just one further point about Putin and his speech, and it was a very interesting one. Notice that he always talks about the West generically. He doesn't do what Western leaders always do. He doesn't talk about Biden, Merkel, Hollande. He doesn't engage in personal abuse or vituperation he doesn't make insulting comments um and that the result is uh, 
that the speech comes over as much, much more calm and much more, shall we say, confident than some of these histrionic things that you see, as you rightly say, from people like Ursula and Baerbock and well, Biden himself and all the others. Yeah, there's no Biden must go in his speech. No. Or, you know, no. we need a regime change in no. in the UK. He's he's not. No. <laughs> he doesn't no. say that in his speech. No. Yeah, Absolutely. On the contrary, on, on the contrary but, he says he says the opposite. You know, if you want to do all these weird things, which I don't understand and don't at all like, and which we don't understand and don't like, that's your business. You do whatever you want to do in your country. I'm not concerned with that. I'm concerned about Russia. Yeah, but the interesting part uh, in closing about um, about what you were saying with uh, with the fact that he feels that that he's he's been vindicated, given all of the the admissions that we've had from from the collective West in in connection to to Minsk and Nord Stream and sanctions and stuff like that, is is that Russia really doesn't have to have to create any type of of propaganda to convince the Russian people that Putin was right in his decision-making or that he felt that he was being cheated in the Minsk agreements. He doesn't have to convince the Russian people. I'm telling you, they're not, they're, they're, they're not going to abide by Minsk. They're trying to scam me. They're trying to cheat me. He doesn't need to make that case because the West makes it for him yes. because they, they, they have this need, this compulsion to, I'm not saying it's, it's a, it's a bad thing. It's, it, it actually, it's, you know, we, we, we get to the truth eventually as to what's going on. Sometimes it can take years, but eventually they do come out and they, and they want to admit what they were up to. Yeah. Yeah. They can't, you, you know, they Merkel, can't Merkel she, she held it in for eight years, but yes. now she's, yes. it, it's all coming out. I know. <laughs> you know, it's like I, a, like I, a I, waterfall. I, all the, the whole yeah. truth is just spilling out of her. And all Russia has to do is say to the Russian people, Listen, listen to what she's saying, everybody. We, do I need to talk? Just listen to what she's saying. And and not just the Russian people, of course, because, I mean, there's the, also the rest of the world, which has also been watching all of this and been watching, reading what Merkel and Poroshenko and Hollande and Zelensky has been saying and what and they they of course read Seymour Hersh's articles. <laughs> they know what they know what's going on, and you know. So as I said, you're absolutely right. He could he 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 can be reasonably relaxed about this. I mean, he actually said, you know, there's some people in our country who you know still are influenced by the propaganda they hear or, or who are attracted by the financial rewards. But we don't need to engage in any kind of witch hunt. He said that there's no need for a witch hunt amongst us because you know the critical mass of us the vast majority of us <laughs> have been able to see perfectly clearly what has been going on and that's as i said this this is why he's able to talk in this way which i think as i say many russians are going to find very compelling i mean it's, it's going to come across to them as structured realistic dignified optimistic upbeat determined but, you know, there's none of the hysteria, none of the neuroses that you see in so many of the speeches that, and in so many of the articles and commentaries and opinion pieces that you find in the West. It's an extraordinary contrast. It, it's something that is so different that it's, I've never known it to be like this at any time 
in international relations, where the West is so agitated and the person that they are um, furious with is so calm. By the way, it, as I said, I come back to what I said, it does create a very, very strong impression around the world. And we're going to discuss China in a specific programme. But I mean, I, I would say that you covered the comments of the Indian foreign minister, for example, very well recently on your channel. Yeah, my, my, my final thought is uh, it, it doesn't look like, I mean, if, if you knew nothing about what was going on in the world today and you said that according to the collective West, that guy right there that's speaking, Putin, that guy right there, he's losing a war to Ukraine, yeah, you would be like, no. really? Does, he doesn't seem very, very panicked or worried at all. I mean, no, I mean, on, on the contrary, he sees the, I mean, he, the, he, he makes it fairly clear that he's going his way. <laughs> that, you know, we're methodically and systematically, you know, doing, uh, finishing, you know, carrying out our task. And that, you know, if they do go ahead and provide all these long range systems, well, that all that will mean is we'll have to push even further west because our priority must be to defend our, our people and our borders. I mean, he clearly isn't under that kind of stress. I, I, I again contrast these calm, measured words with you know the panicky language of someone like Borrell. Unless we can find ammunition within the next few weeks, the war is over. I mean that kind of stuff. I mean it's 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 very very different. As I said, very low. In some ways, I don't even say it was low key, but as I said, very controlled. Very measured speech, carefully written, extremely structured, very well argued, very well constructed. And as I said, it will make to the Russians a compelling case. Yeah. Uh, before we end the video, speaking about presidents, just a rumor. You sent me this message. This is just a rumor. But there is the rumor floating around about Macron that he may be, yes. may be looking to, yes. to move away from from politics. <laughs> Let's just yeah. say that. But this is just this is, a rumor. What, what, yeah. what are you hearing? Yeah, it, it, it's buzzing around and it now finally has started to creep into mainstream media. I'm, you know, take all this with not just a cascade of salt, but an absolute Mount Everest of salt. But the story is that he's, he's, he's very uh, uh, tired and frustrated because his pension reform uh, um, has a, provoked so much opposition and it's not going to succeed. He's um, very frustrated working with the French Parliament, in which he no longer has a majority, that he senses that you know, he's not able to achieve anything. He doesn't want to remain a president who's purely um, you know, um, there but can't do anything, and that he's thinking of quitting. And being Macron, his idea seems to be he'll step aside, call an early election, lose the election, and whoever takes over, and he presumes it will be Le Pen, will have all kinds of problems, and that will set the scene for Macron's triumphant return. That's the word that's going round. I don't know how much truth there is to any of this, but I mean, I wouldn't take it hugely seriously. But it's interesting that people are talking about this, and it does suggest that within France, in Paris itself, there are some people who are starting to think that, well, Macron um, is you know, either on his way out or should be.
when these when these yeah, rumors the start to when these rumors start to circulate, they may be more the expression of other people's wish and important people's wish than of Macron's. But you know, he could find himself having to conform to those wishes before very long if things continue in France as they are. Go on. No, I was just saying, yeah, these are rumors, and I, I, I would say that this is very unlikely. But, but you do have cases like in New Zealand or in Scotland where the leader says, you know, I'm tired and I've just had enough and, and yeah. I resign. Exactly. So, I mean, you know, we are seeing this happen quite often yeah. now yes. amongst these, yes. these, these, uh, these neoliberal leaders that, that yes. we've been following. Yes, Yes, exactly so. And again, one will be left to wonder exactly why it's happened. But anyway, that does seem to be the, that does seem to be, uh, as I said, it's a rumour that's flying around. And, you know, it's a funny thing with these kind of rumours, because there were similar rumours about Sturgeon circulating for quite a few months, which I discounted, by the way. I didn't take them seriously. But, you know, sometimes these rumours turn out to be true. So let's just keep an eye out on this and see what happens. Yeah, and just a final note is is my hunch is that there are probably quite a lot of leaders in the EU who are also quite exhausted with uh, yes. with yes. the escalation in Ukraine. That's just my hunch. Well, I'm sure there are a well, lot of leaders I, who are just sick of sick of all of it. Well, I'm, I'm sure there are lots of them. I'm sure there are lots of them who are tired with the hysteria they're having to put up with, like the, I mean, really outlandish and crazy comments. I I, I, I speak frankly about this of the Estonian Prime Minister who said that, you know, we must take over Moscow, take control of Moscow and re-educate Russians. <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, and they all have to sit there and listen to this thing. And they must, many of them, be absolutely frustrated and angry with themselves at having to put up with uh, listening to this kind of nonsense all the time. And, you know, hysteria like that, comments like that, they're, they're wearing. People get tired of them. And it... It wouldn't surprise me if there's some people who say to themselves, well, I'm just going to walk away. I mean, I, th there's only so much of this as I can take. Yeah, I agree. All right. Uh, the Duran.locals.com. We are also on Rockfin and go to the Duran shop. 10% off. Use the code. Good day. Take care.